0: It is good to be with you once again, whether you're joining us inside, whether you're enjoying the patio. Welcome to Rocky Peak, especially if you're joining us for the very first time this weekend. Special welcome to you. If you and I have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Rocky Peak, and I'm excited as we jump into our passage for the weekend. And so as Kelly mentioned, if you would go ahead and open up your program and get those green and white message note sheets out, as we say every week, they're a great tool to help you follow along with this time of teaching. I also like providing a lot of blank space in there for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is specifically prompting you to remember. You're definitely gonna need your Bibles as we do every week. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna dive right in. Jesus, I come before you right now as nothing else but your son. And as my father, you know that these last two weeks have been quite unexpected. But these last couple of weeks in my life have brought a lot of stress, a lot of challenge, have kind of crumpled these precious plans and schedules I had. And the reason I share that in front of my brothers and sisters is I know I'm not the only one here this morning that's coming in that spirit. And what a beautiful truth that we can be reminded of something I've quoted before. The church isn't meant to be a museum for the perfect, but it's a home for the broken. And so Jesus, wherever our last day, our last week, our last month, even our last year has caused in us, here we are now to be with this community that you've given us. More importantly, to be under your word, which gives us hope, which gives us strength, which gives us power, which gives us forgiveness, which gives us redemption. And Jesus, as we open up your living and active word, as I often pray as the communicator, let me become less and fall to the wayside, Jesus. Let you, as the source of truth, as the author of our salvation, as the king of kings, become much, much more. And it's in your precious name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen. Well, Rocky Peak, this weekend, we're gonna be continuing this series we've been in for what seemingly has felt like the last decade or so called Signs, the Path to Life. And if you're brand new, this series has been an in-depth study in the life and teachings of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, a man that we call the Apostle John. Now, as we go through the Gospel of John, John is writing as an old man near the end of his life and he's looking back on his experience with Jesus, and through his gospel, he's inviting each of us to go on a journey with him. In particular, John is going to be highlighting the seven supernatural signs, all designed to help us better understand who Jesus really is, the purpose of why Jesus came in the first place, and what is the path that Jesus leads each of us on to experience life and life to the full. And so this morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be concluding John chapter 8. And if you've been with us over these last several weeks, this has been a long chapter. And in particular, in this chapter... We have seen Jesus and Jesus in these long drawn out arguments with some of his opposition in the city of Jerusalem. Some of the religious leaders and maybe other Jews that stand against Jesus. And what we have seen are arguments and counter arguments over the nature of truth. And if you were here last week as Tim led us and he did an incredible job, you remember that things got spicy didn't they? In fact, there on your note sheet, there's a quick recap from last week, and I'm not going to go over it, but I want to highlight that Tim asked one very important question of us last week. What is your source of truth? Because if we look at the entirety of John chapter 8, that is what this entire fight has been all about, is Jesus telling the truth about who he is, Can we trust the words of Jesus? And as we go into this conclusion this morning, we're gonna be continuing right where Tim left off last week. That is still the foundation of the conflict, not just between Jesus and these religious leaders, but honestly between Jesus and our hearts today. Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do we believe that Jesus' words are true? And how do we respond? When we don't believe that Jesus is the absolute truth. And so that's what we're going to be unpacking with our time today. And so if you're following along in your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Last Straw. If you've got your Bible, open it up. If you've got your app, turn it on. We're going to be going to John chapter 8 and we're going to be starting at verse 48. And as always, Rocky Peak, have your pens and highlighters ready, have your highlight function ready, because we're going to mark a lot of this up. And so starting at verse 48, the Jews, not speaking of all of them, but the religious leaders, the ones that are standing against Jesus in this conflict, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Would you underline those two statements, Samaritan and demon-possessed, Now, we need to stop right there because they are dropping bombs from the first verse in our section. Because here's what's going on. This is a direct continuation of last week. Again, if you didn't hear Tim's message, I would encourage you to go and listen to it because Jesus essentially told these religious people, these religious leaders, you don't know God. In fact, he said, your father is the devil. And did that go over well? No. And so this hurts. There, Jesus' words hurt. And so what we are seeing is things are dramatically escalating that in their hurt, they are lashing out with radically hurtful slurs and personal insults, and to understand how the depth of their words, we need to dig into the context a little bit. For one Jew to refer to another as a Samaritan in that time, in that culture, carry deep, deep offense. We talked about the Samaritans in depth back when when we were in chapter four. But briefly, they had been a group of Jews who hundreds of years earlier had begun to intermarry with foreign foreign cultures. And so at the time of Jesus, the Samaritans were absolutely detested because they were seen as impure. They were seen as impure racially. They were seen as impure religiously because they had their own temple, their own forms of worship, their own interpretation of the law. In fact, at the time, there were Jewish literatures that refer to the Samaritans as less than human. And so as we add that context, now we kind of hear the vitriol in their words of saying, aren't we right in saying, you are a Samaritan? And with that, and demon-possessed, So this is about the third or the fourth time that Jesus has been accused of being demon possessed in John's gospel. And so again, as Jesus and Tim's message last week said that you don't know God, your father is the devil. They take this as for one Jew to say to another that you don't know God. The only explanation is that you are doing the work of the devil. That is the only explanation for why you are saying this. Now, Rocky Peak, we need to pause and we need to take a step back because something I've said many times before is that when we see particularly the religious leaders stand against Jesus, when we see especially them hurl these insults and make no mistake, what they are doing is wrong. It can become very easy for us to cast judgment on them and to go, how could you? How dare you? How could you be so stupid and so foolish? But in humility, we need to take a hard step back and we need to realize that, yes, what they are doing is absolutely wrong. And at the same time, what they are doing is absolutely relatable. Because why are they responding the way they are? Because Jesus' truth is cutting them deeply into what they currently believe. Jesus is challenging their most passionate and deepest held belief and them's fighting words. And think about it in your life. When you are challenged in a belief that you hold deeply, Do you respond well or do you respond with the gloves on? We're gonna fight no matter what. And again, this involves some difficult examination to understand our nature. See, sin broke our hearts. Sin changed everything about us. And so when sin broke our hearts, it developed a heart in us that wants to fight, whether we're right or wrong, but wants to fight to my aversion of truth. And there are times in my pride when I want to be like, no, 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 no. That's not true. I would be calm. I would be rational. And very quickly, I'm reminded that I'm willing to fight over the supernatural, let alone the deep. And let me illustrate it this way. What's this? It's a box of the greatest cereal known to man, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, right? And those of you that know my affinity for cinnamon, you know that well. But let me add a spin to this question. How many of you are siblings or the parent of siblings? So if you are a sibling, I'm the youngest of three total. If you are the parent of sibling, I'm the father of three kids. Then the question of what this just took on a deeper meaning This is no longer simply a box of cereal. This is the catalyst for a fight waiting to happen. And here's what I mean. If you grew up with siblings, and all of you stumbled out of your room on Saturday morning, and all of you were hungry, and at the same time you reached for the box of cereal, did that go down patiently and graciously? Was there a, oh no, no, you go first. I will patiently wait to pour my, no, 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 let me serve you, let me pour your milk. No, things got thrown pretty immediately, right? You began arguing over superiority, over age, over status, over station. You began making your case as to why mom loves you more. Therefore, you should eat the bowl of cereal for. You began to fight because in that moment, there was nothing more important than a bowl of cereal. Now, let's replace that with something else that's seemingly superficial, but we fight over. Parking spots. <laughs> wow, that one hit deeper than I thought it was going to. <laughs> the line at checkout at Targets. Amazon leaving the box further than you would have preferred them to. And we legitimately get angry, don't we? Now let's start going from the supernatural and start going even deeper to the stuff that matters. And let's keep going and going to the stuff that really matters. And let's keep going and going to the depths of our hearts, to the things that matter the most to us. And how do we respond when we feel that our most passionately held beliefs, whether right or wrong, but they are our passionately held beliefs are being challenged and stood against. See, it would be foolish, Rocky Peak, if I stood here and said that I couldn't relate to these religious leaders. It would be foolish of us to think that we can't relate. Again, what they're doing is wrong but we can empathize in a way that maybe we didn't realize. And so we continue. Verse 49, I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Again, Jesus has this recurring teaching that he tells us in John's gospel that what he is doing is not on his own. He is not separate from God the Father that to him what matters is that God, a light is being shined, that God is awesome, that God is worthy of all praise. Verse 51, very truly I tell you and again if you've been following along in this chapter as well as in this gospel, When Jesus uses that phrase, he's politely saying, pay attention. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Would you underline or highlight that entire verse? Who Very truly, I tell you, that whoever obeys my word will never see death. And again, this is a reminder of the purpose of why Jesus came. This is a reminder of the foundation of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. This is a reminder of who Jesus is and what Jesus continues to do in our lives today, that Jesus is life that Jesus brings life, that the defining characteristic of the kingdom of God is life. And so to encounter Jesus, to be transformed by Jesus, to follow after Jesus is to follow after life, to experience great life, the life that only Jesus could bring. And so Jesus is telling us this recurring theme throughout John's gospel that life is experienced through Obedience, not a grumbling, forced obedience, but a heart that realizes that obeying, obeying the truth and the Word of God is how I experience the life I was created to live obedience leads to life. Every other path leads to, leads to death. And so by obeying God's word, it's another way of saying obeying God's truth it means that we have done more than simply hear it. It's why at Rocky Peak we say listen and follow. It means that we are declaring life lives in my heart. No longer death. I am rooting myself in the life that only Jesus can bring and it overflows into every other aspect. Notice the beauty and yet the scandalous controversy for who he's talking about, that this is an absolute claim. Jesus is not saying obedience is one way to life. He's saying obedience is the way to life. Well, this isn't going to go down well. Verse 52, at this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Would you underline or highlight that? Who do you think you are? Now again, this is continuing this conversation from last week or the last couple weeks about Abraham and their lineage as the Jewish people and they're flabbergasted. Again, this hurts because Abraham, as he should be, is a hero, as he should still be today. Abraham is one to be honored, is one to be revered. And they're hearing Jesus' words going, hey, Abraham listened and followed and he died. The prophets listened and followed and they died. Who do you think you are? That you are greater than one of our greatest heroes? And so verse 54, Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, meaning if I make my own platform, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me And yet again, we see this recurring theme in John's gospel that Jesus is often declaring that he's not simply another upstart prophet or teacher, but he is declaring, claiming a unique unity with God the Father. Verse 55, though you do not know him, I know him. Would you underline or highlight that? Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his words. Okay. (laughs) Let's stop right here. Jesus' words are blunt, but there's a purpose behind his, behind how blunt he is. And I want to just do a quick sidebar. And this is more for checking my heart and my pride than anything else. Sometimes we see a scripture like this and go, see, Jesus is blunt. That means I get to be blunt too. <laughs> Jesus did a lot that I can't do because he's God. Keep that in mind <laughs> as we go in. But again, Jesus is speaking to this audience and he's essentially saying, you think you know God, but you do not. And one very important thing is again, we need to take a step back and understand the type of audience he's speaking to. He is not speaking to a pagan, unreligious, away from Yahweh audience. He is speaking to a religiously devout, Audience. He is speaking to leaders and a people who have a devotion and a pursuit, in many cases, a daily devotion and a daily pursuit to the Lord God Yahweh. He is speaking to a people that have a knowledge, in some cases a rich knowledge of scripture, that have a rich knowledge of disciplines and practices, to a people that find beauty in both of those things. He is speaking to people that genuinely would say they have a desire to know God, that they have an desire to experience God's Messiah when Messiah is coming. He is speaking to an audience that is 100% convinced that they know what God is all about. And it's to that audience that Jesus is saying, you don't know God. He's speaking to an audience like us. And why? Because too often we make the mistake of assuming that proximity to Jesus is the same thing as transformation. Too often we make the mistake that proximity. I've been going to church for years. I have signed up for all the right things. I'm in a life group. I serve. I worship. I have the scriptures up on my house. I know the scriptures, I know Jesus, I know disciplines, and hear me, those are all beautiful things, but those don't take the place of a heart that has truly been transformed. You know, this year, for the first time in my life, I've been doing a read through the Bible in a year plan And currently I'm finishing up the minor prophets of the Old Testament and it's amazing seeing them all close together and seeing that for the most part they all have the same theme. You worship, you sacrifice, you do the right things, but your heart is in the wrong place. And so easy, it's easy for us as Christ followers to weaponize that statement, you don't know God, and to point to people in our lives, to point to people in our nation, to point to people in the media, And to go, you don't know God. And there is a time and a place for that. But the words of Jesus are challenging us to first ask that of our own heart. Is our heart in a place where we are in proximity, but not in transformation? And if I ask myself that question... If I asked myself, what would it be like if Jesus looked at me, Dre, and said, you don't know God. I gotta be honest with you, Rocky Peak, that would not go down well. Those are fighting words. And I would put on my gloves and I would fight. I would lawyer up, Jesus, and I would go, you are wrong. I gave my life to you years ago. I have been faithfully walking after you. I am doing the right things. I have sacrificed things for you, Jesus. Jesus, I know God. I know who you are. I would be ready to fight. And again, if I take a step back of humility, I need to understand that when I fight, whether it's against my brothers or sisters, whether against my opposition, when I fight Jesus, what I want to do is win. When Jesus fights, he does not simply want to win. He wants you to experience life. And so he's willing to enter in to the challenge of our hearts. He's willing to bring a truth that only he can. He's willing to make these bold statements, not to leave us there, but to say you don't know God yet. Your heart is trapped for now. You're living in bondage for now, but follow me and I will lead you to a new life. And so as we continue, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Again, we don't know if it was through foreshadowing, whether through Isaac and that or the promise that God gave Abraham or whether God gave Abraham a very specific prophetic vision, but Jesus is confirming that Abraham had some type of confirmation of the messianic age, of the Messiah to come. He is talking about a bigger picture. And here at Gayette, again, another recurring theme I've been addressing a lot in John's gospel that as fallen, as limited human beings, we get stuck with just what we can see. And often, I put on my gloves to fight God because I desperately want God God to make sense. I want God to make sense to my teeny tiny little brain and I want to force him to make sense. And here is Jesus once again showing there is a bigger picture than what you can see. There is a bigger picture than what immediately makes sense to you. Step back. In verse 58, very truly I tell you, there's that phrase again. Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. Would you underline or highlight that statement? I am. Jesus, up to this point, has made some very, very bold claims in John's gospel. But this is easily his boldest yet, because there is no mistaking that he is claiming divinity. He is claiming to be the absolute. See, in the original language, this is different from some of the other I am statements in John's gospel because those were designed to fin- to have another, another part to them. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the death and the resurrection. This is a different statement that it's designed in the original language to stand on its own, beginning and end. I am. Am. And especially as a Jewish audience, what does that immediately invoke? Exodus 3. When Moses says, what's your name? Who do I say sent me? And God says, I am. Jesus is declaring that he is the definitive. He is the absolute. He has no beginning and he has no end. Try to wrap your minds around that. that he always has been, he always is, and he always will be. I am. And to no surprise in verse 59, at this they picked up their stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Now for them, we've crossed into the territory of blasphemy either claiming to be God or attempting to claim or do what only God himself can do. And again, it's not the first time Jesus has been accused of this in John's gospel. But if we go to Leviticus chapter 24, we see that blasphemy is such a grave crime that it's punishable by death. But usually it was punishable after there was a judicial verdict or ruling. This is mob violence. And again, we can sit there and go, what are these guys doing? But if I examine my own heart, if I think about when I'm challenged, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But when you have been challenged at your deepest beliefs, have you ever been surprised at what you're capable of? When you have been cut straight to the core of what it is you believe, what it is you find true, have you been surprised at how you think of other people? Have you been surprised at what you've said? Have you been surprised at what you've even done? It's scandalous. Jesus' words are scandalous. They are evoking outrage. They are provoking anger at its deepest course. It's raising fear. Because there's a deep implication. If Jesus is right, then that means I've been wrong. And that doesn't sit well, does it? If Jesus is right, then that means I've I've been wrong. And for Jesus to be true, that means what I've defined as true in my life needs to be overthrown and there's implications and consequences to that. But again, these words and these passages of Jesus is to remind us of the greater truth that his word, his truth, is not meant simply for us to live in shame, but it's meant to lead us to life and truth. Because at the end of the day, that is what truth is. Truth is life. Life. And so as Jesus speaks truth, what he is doing is he is speaking life into the depths of our hearts, amen? So that's our passage for the day. What I want to do with the time that we have left, as we usually do, is I want to unpack these two takeaways that come out of it. But one thing I want to highlight is that the two takeaways we're going to unpack are very similar from the two takeaways we unpacked when we were together at the end of chapter 7. And that's some of the beauty of John's gospel, that there are many recurring themes. And I just want to point out that in Scripture in particular, when the Bible seems to repeat itself, it's God's way of saying, put neon lights around this. Because this is something we can't miss. And so with that, there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, Scandalous Truth. And your first fill-in is this. Jesus' truth challenges our hearts. Jesus' truth challenges our heart. How do you feel about the word challenge? I don't like it. And if I'm honest with you, it's because in general, I don't like being challenged in any way. I feel that if I examine my life, I see that I spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of resources in the specific purpose of eliminating as many challenges out of my life as I possibly can. When it comes to life, when it comes to things, my bar of happiness is just work. Just don't be dramatic, just work. And so I, and I'm sure many of us, when it comes to a truth like this, we need a brand new paradigm. And because as I talked about earlier of what sin has done to our heart, we need to understand that when Jesus challenges us with his words, it's not for the sake of just challenging us. When Jesus challenges us with truth, he's not enjoying how much he's messing with our life and our emotions. The new paradigm is that the challenge of Jesus is one of the primary ways in which he leads us to experience a greater life. The challenge of Jesus is how he leads us to experience a greater truth. Because we are created beings and our heart, which biblically is far more than just our emotions, through a biblical definition, our heart is the control center of of our being. It's the control center of our identity. Our heart is the reason we are the way we are. Our heart was designed to have a king. Specifically, our heart was designed to be ruled by King Jesus himself. But because of sin, because of choices, what often happens in our heart is that a coup has taken place. And Jesus has been removed from his throne and something else, whether another person, whether another desire, whether another belief, whether another faction, whatever it may be, has been placed on the throne that Jesus and Jesus alone was meant to live. And here is the tactful part of the spiritual warfare, is that often it happened without us realizing it. You know, last week, and again, if you haven't listened to the message, I would highly encourage you to. Tim did an excellent job of going through the enemy and the nature of the enemy. And without treading over too much of that ground, when it comes to spiritual warfare, in my pride, I think many of us, we expect spiritual warfare to be obvious. We expect that we're going to be able to see the enemy coming from a mile away. We expect that we're going to have this like spiritual spider sense going off going, evil! That's evil! We know that's evil and I can avoid it. But the brilliance of the enemy is his strategy. What the enemy is trying to do to attack our hearts is to not be obvious. He's not going to be blatant. What the enemy is going to do is he is going to very gradually and very patiently distort how we view Jesus by about 2% at a time. Because even a 2% distortion is a distortion. And it's going to then build and it's going to then build, and it's going to then build. As we saw last week, when he came to Adam and Eve, he simply rearranged or omitted some of the words in the statement. It was a slight distortion with significant consequences. And so the strategy of the enemy is that he wants to keep our hearts close enough so that the lies seem like truth. His strategy is to keep us in the right proximity so that distortions could take root. And before we know it, we have completely missed the mark as to who Jesus is and what it means to truly follow after him. Let me illustrate it this way. You know, I've said many times before that often the internet is like a dumpster on fire. But every so often, the internet can actually be a fairly entertaining place. And several years ago, there was a viral hashtag that really made me laugh called Explain a Movie Plot Badly and it was a game over social media, was to take these movies, in particular, to take epic movies and to somehow explain the plot in a way that is technically true, but completely butchers what the movie is about. And so one of my favorite examples of this was towards one of my favorite movies of all time, The Empire Strikes Back. And so I'm gonna throw an image up on the screen because it's gonna be a helpful visual. And so in my humble yet completely correct opinion, Empire is the greatest sequel ever made. And it's hard to describe Empire without it sounding epic in any way. And as I thought about how to do it, my best shot is to just focus on Luke Skywalker's character arc, that we follow Luke, this young leader, as he's been thrust into this galactic conflict that is bigger than him, as he's trying to learn this ancient way that has long been lost, as these weights continue to build these insurmountable issues on his shoulder with the loss of friends, with the revelation of family and devastating secrets continue to build as failure continues to build, and you wonder, what is he going to do next? Now, tell me, that sounds pretty epic, right? So this hashtag explained that movie this way. A talking frog convinces a son to kill his dad. Technically that's correct. But if that's what you thought the Empire Strikes Back was about, you would be completely wrong. Proximity does not equal truth. And so our hearts regularly need truth, absolute truth, to be spoken into it, to reveal the lies we don't even see that have taken root in them. And so Christ followers, what do we need to do? We need to embrace the challenge. We need to step up, rise up, and embrace the challenge of hearing Jesus' truth directly in our hearts. There in your note sheet, I like how N.T. Wright puts it. Throughout his brief public career, Jesus spoke and he acted as if God's plan of salvation and justice for Israel, and the world was being unveiled through his own presence, his own work, and his own faith. But like many of Israel's prophets of old, in doing this, Jesus confronted other kingdom dreams and kingdom visions. If his way, so again, the way of Jesus, of bringing the kingdom was the right way, then Herod's way, meaning the establishment and the ruling power at the time, then Herod's way was not. The Qumran way, meaning completely separating yourself, building walls and having absolutely nothing to do with anything irreligious or anything considered not holy, was not. And the zealot way, which is fight against the establishment, fight against the ungodly forces, take the word to them, was not. And so how do we embrace the challenge, well, it means that we need to take an essential but an import, but a difficult step, and we need to ask a new question, and it's not in your note sheet, but I would encourage you to write it. We need to go before Jesus regularly and say, Jesus, what do you want to say about my heart? Jesus, what do you want to say about my heart? What don't I see? What do I see but I've been trying to ignore or look the other way? What is going on in different areas in my life? And with that, let the Lord lead that to specific places. Jesus, what do you wanna to say to my heart, about my heart when it comes to my priorities? when it comes to what I claim to be the most important thing to me, but what really is the most important thing in my heart. Jesus, what do you want to say about the way I choose to spend my time or the way I spend my money? Jesus, what do you want to say about what my heart thinks about, what it dwells on? Jesus, what do you want to say to, about my heart when it comes to relationships, relationships, whether it comes to my marriage or a desire for marriage. Whether it comes to my kids or my relationship with my parents or grandparents. When it comes to my friendships or my broken friendships. When it comes to my relationship with my coworkers or my neighbors. When it comes to my relationship with my church and my spiritual life and brothers and sisters, what do you want to say to my heart in that? Jesus, what do you want to say to my heart when it comes to my fears and anxiety? when it comes to the things that I dwell on, the things I worry the most about, Jesus, what do you want to say to my heart about the areas in which I'm confused and frustrated And Jesus, what do you want to say to my heart about where I'm angry, about when I look at the state of the world, when I look at people, when I look at enemies, when I look at aggression? Jesus, what do you want to say to my heart about my politics and how I view that? Jesus, what do you want to say to my heart about serving you and serving your kingdom? Jesus, what do you want to say to my heart And as we talk about various examples, some of us might feel our stomach's kind of growing in knots going, I don't want to ask that question. I don't want to let Jesus in. And again, I understand the intimidation because I share it with you, but that's the beauty in the passage we just read, that Jesus is not calling us out to leave us there. There's a religious myth that God is all about bringing up your guilt and leaving But why does Jesus call out the truth in our hearts? To redeem it, to forgive it, to remove the bondage, and to fill it with a greater life. And that leads me to the second fill-in. Jesus' truth brings life to our hearts. And there in your note sheet, I feel like every time I've taught in this series, I've quoted this verse, John 10, 10, The thief, the enemy comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I, Jesus, have come, that they may have life and have it to the full. And first off, if you're engaging in the practice of memorizing Scripture, I would highly encourage you to memorize that verse. And secondly, do you notice the phrase, to the full, The purpose of Jesus isn't simply life but more than you could possibly imagine and expect, a life to the full. And so again, Jesus' words, Jesus' truth, Jesus calling me out. It's not for the sake of calling me out, but it's for the sake of leading me to experience more life. It's for the sake of leading me to experience more freedom. It's for the sake of me experiencing more hope. It's for the sake of me experiencing more power. See, when I look at those words, words of Jesus, the beauty of it is we have far too many Christ followers that have fallen into the trap that by proclaiming in the name of Jesus, our lives have gotten worse. We have far too many Christ followers that have fallen into this temptation, this spiritual attack, that proclaiming the name of Jesus has somehow made us angrier, more bitter, more fearful, more frustrated, more hopeless, more powerless. But what Jesus is doing is he's breaking through those lies and he's saying proclaiming the name of Jesus is freedom, is life, is truth. We are imperfect, we are going to struggle, we are going to fall, we are going to hurt, but in all of that, Jesus will always respond with life, and a greater life than we could possibly imagine. And so to experience this as we close out our time there, just that last section in note how do we experience this truth? The fill-in is a regular examination of our hearts, See, what we need to do, Christ followers, we need to take the essential step of creating space one-on-one, not to do self-checks, but for Jesus the King to regularly examine our hearts. We need to create space, and hear me, we need to beautifully fight for that space, because the enemy will fight by trying to busy us by trying to distract us, by trying to take that away. But we need to create space and we need to fight for it to sit with Jesus' words, whether we read it, whether we listen to it, to experience it for ourselves, to dwell and meditate on it, to wrestle, to fight, to push back if we need to. But we need to sit with truth. And what happens when we begin to create that space, when we fight that for that space, when we make that space sacred in our lives and in the lives of our family is that we go from a reactive stance with Jesus to a proactive stance. A mistake I have made too often in my life is that I wait for an emergency to reveal the state of my heart. I wait for an emergency to reveal the state of my heart towards Jesus, to reveal the state of my heart towards my relationships, to reveal what I actually think and what I actually believe by creating this space to sit with Jesus, to sit with his word, to sit with his truth. I am now taking a proactive stance because the danger of waiting for an emergency is that it reveals the state of our heart and we're in the midst of a storm and stress. And so it's hard to do anything about it. But when we sit regularly with Jesus, and allow him to speak, allow him to be unrushed. It begins to prepare in as a hope, a strength, a power, and a life we never thought imaginable. I love there on your note sheet, I love this prayer from David. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting And you know what I should have done? I made a mistake, Rocky Peak. I should have put the two verses before it. Because the two verses before it, David is talking about the people that stand against God, his enemies, and he says that he has such hatred for them. And it's in this angry confession that David says, search my heart. Check me and lead me to your life everlasting. And so how could you start? today, take this passage and sit, listen, read, wrestle, push back, invite. What do you want to say to my heart? Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And as we close this time, we want to give you the opportunity to be able to invite Jesus to speak to be able to hear what he has to say in your heart and we're gonna do that by singing a final song of worship but also during this time we're gonna do that by inviting you to this act of communion If you've given your life to Jesus, if you are a Christ follower, we are imperfect, we will stumble and fall, but that means you are God's precious child. And so we want to invite you during this time to take this act of communion. And as we do, this is a reminder and a celebration that Jesus is the source of life. By taking communion, we remember that it was his body, his blood that was broken so that we may now live in this life as well as the next. And so I pray as the band begins to sing over to us. Feel free to go at your pace. Feel free to let the Lord speak, but feel free to open these up as the Lord leads you to take of the bread, to take of the drink, and then feel free to worship as the Lord leads you as well. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that your truth speaks life into us. We thank you that there's nowhere else in which we will receive hope, we will receive power, we will receive encouragement, we will receive forgiveness and redemption, we will receive life eternal, but your word. And so again, we thank you for that truth. And as we go into this song, Jesus, we thank you for what we're gonna declare as we talk about how you refine us. And it's not always an easy process. At times, it's downright painful, but it's always for the purpose of experiencing more of who you are and the life that you bring. We thank you for this act of communion, this act of celebration and remembrance. And we just thank you for you and your unwavering grace, truth, and love. It's in your name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen.